getting the chance to live and work in so many different places is such a privilege and a joy. I feel like I've had this unbelievable opportunity to learn from people whose backgrounds are so vastly different from mine. Mm. And to bring that level of empathy and experience with me into conversations, in particular in a place like London, is just so powerful because you realize that everyone has their own story and everybody has their own prejudices and biases they come to the table with. And for me, you know, it's been a great opportunity to, to be able to take that experience of working with people from vastly different backgrounds and then be able to apply that to this incredibly dynamic, diverse working environment that we have here. Hello and welcome to the Women of the Future podcast, a podcast made in collaboration with the Women of the Future programme, a platform built to unlock a culture of kindness and collaboration among leaders, as well as support and celebrate the successes of women. I'm Kim Rowell and I won the media category at their awards in 2018 in recognition of my continued work as a commissioner, producer and children's author, particularly within the mental health remit. I'll be talking to my guests on this podcast about their careers, who or what gave them their first big break, their successes, failures and inspirations along the way, and how they came to be a part of the Women of the Future Network. Lauren Dickerson is a clean tech entrepreneur from Boston, Massachusetts in the USA. Co-founder of Lunagen, an innovative hydropower technology startup, Lauren has a remarkable background in renewable energy consulting and market analysis. With a BA from Boston College and an MBA from Imperial College, Lauren is currently head of partnerships at Centrica, based in London. Lauren was shortlisted for a Woman of the Future Award in the MBA Star category in 2016, and it's fair to say that issues of climate change, the environment, clean tech and sustainability are very dear to her heart. Well, I was born in Phoenix, Arizona, which is not quite on the West Coast, but it's in the West of the United States. And my parents quickly decided to move away from Phoenix, Arizona to my mom's home state of Massachusetts. So we migrated east when I was about four months old, and I ended up growing up in the Boston area for basically the rest of my childhood. I am the first of two. Um, I have a younger brother, and my mom and dad were you know, the core part of our family. And then around my family, I had my grandparents nearby, aunts and uncles, cousins. And so it was nice that you know we could all be together and family holidays and birthdays and things like that. I would be the first to admit that I grew up in an unbelievably privileged environment. I grew up in a suburban town outside of one of the most dynamic places in the United States. Boston is an incredible city. It has more colleges and universities than any other town in America and the highest per capita population of students. So what that ends up doing is it introduces a huge amount of diversity and opportunities for people to learn about science and math mm. and the arts and be exposed to just, you know, things that pique young people's curiosity. And on top of being not too far from Boston, we were also in this really beautiful part of the country that can, combines a lovely countryside, but also the ocean. And so I had lots and lots of opportunities 
to spend time on the water with my grandparents, but also with my friends. I learned to sail at an early age, and the opportunity to go to the beach and be nearby beaches was an incredibly formative part of my childhood. I grew up basically on the water and and feel incredibly spoiled to have had that existence as a child. Do you have a, a real affinity with the sea? Yes. And, yeah. Because obviously you've gone on to work, well, not to jump the gun too much, but you've gone <laughs> on to work in hydropower and yeah. that kind of more sustainable energy side of things. Which, so would you say that was where the originations of your career, I suppose, even when you were at a relatively young age? It, it's definitely one of, the, one of the common threads you see throughout my career is a passion for the environment. Equally as formative as growing up nearby the water in Massachusetts, was the fact that my parents took my brother and I to Hawaii every couple of years. And I remember when I was probably about eight or nine years old, I decided I'm definitely going to be a marine biologist when I grow up because I want to move to Hawaii and live and work on a boat and watch whales all day. We were so fortunate to get to go in the wintertime because that's when the humpback whale population of the Pacific migrates to Hawaii to have oh, their babies. Wow. So, so you got to see all of that? Oh, they come in so close. You don't even have to get on a boat to actually go out and see these whales. You can see them from the beach. They come in sometimes, you know, a couple hundred meters off the beach. You can get in kayaks, and if you're lucky and one happens to be there, then they'll just come over and inspect you and check but you they're out. They're really inquisitive. Very curious. You really get a feel for just how intelligent these animals are. And, you know, as, as young people, my parents took my brother and I out onto whale watching boats so that we could go and learn about these animals and be up close and personal with them and, you know, hear the noises that they were making in the water. And I just remember this one time sitting on, on a boat and parking myself next to the resident naturalist and just interrogating him for the entire time that we were on the boat. How old were you? I'm probably like 10 years old. I was just but like, he was like, great. <laughs> really. yeah. You're like, no, tell me more, tell me more, tell me more. <laughs> Someone get this child away from me. <laughs> so, you know, that was hugely impactful to me as, as a young person. I became absolutely passionate about the ocean, but also more broadly the environment. And I'd mm. say that's probably the first kind of seed that yeah. got me on this trajectory of being really passionate about changing the way in which we produce and consume energy. Because for us to be able to continue to enjoy the natural environment and the variety of species of plants and animals that we've come to know and you know consider incredibly photogenic and important, we really need to rethink how it is that we integrate energy into our lives. And, and for most consumers, it's not something that's front of mind for a lot of businesses becoming increasingly front of mind because of the cost implications yeah. on uh, especially industry. But you know, the more that climate change and the impacts of climate change become apparent to us as, you know, as a society, the more obvious the imperative to change is. Absolutely. And so was science and the environment a big part of your scholastic life as well? Do you study at school and university? Yeah. So when I was actually in high school, so age 14 to 18, I thought that I was going to go on to do medicine in university. And I loved science, I was good at science, I was good at math, I was on the math team, a certified <laughs> mathlete. Uh, oh, did you have to do those competitions? Are you all seeing the movie? I know this is sort of generalization here, but when you're on two panels and you buzz in to well, answer the question. It, it, wasn't, it wasn't kind of Jeopardy style, okay. you know, no, competitions, not quite but more like you're in a room with a hundred other nerds rapidly trying to solve difficult math problems. I will say that 
of all of the mathletes on my math team, I was definitely on the junior varsity team. I was not one of the <laughs> strongest, but it's something that you know I enjoyed and it helps me to kind of keep up my skills and really learn from people who I knew were smarter than me. And that's something that I've always really tried to do is to situate myself really surrounded by people who I knew were smarter than me so that I could learn from them because that's the way that you improve. Yeah. Um, Is that something that you've continued to do as you've gone on in life? Yeah, yeah. I really enjoy being around smart people and I especially enjoy being not the smartest person in the room because that's the way that you learn yeah. by sitting with people who know more than you that you can ask questions of and if you're good at listening and good at following a, a questioning thread through, then you can really get a lot from making sure that you know you can take the most advantage of being around folks who know more about something different to you. So I, I always try to do that. So what was your first job? So my first professional job after uni was I worked as a, a legal assistant in Paris, France. So let me let me back up a little bit. That's a little bit of a curveball, isn't it? Definitely. <laughs> From STEM kind of subject matter to legal. Yes. So I started out, and when, in high school, I really thought that I wanted to go into science and math when I went to university. And I actually I enrolled at my university in a pre-med program. The way it works in the U.S. is that you can't go straight into being a doctor. You have to study a host of mainly science and math-based topics and then apply to medical school and then you go on to this whole other host of training that takes, okay. you know, in many instances up to a decade to become a fully-fledged doctor. And so my first day at uni, I remember going and sitting with my, my tutor for all intents and purposes. We don't call them tutors mm. in the U.S., but she was one of my assigned counselors or advisors. Okay. And I just said, I'm on track to go into medicine and here are the classes that I'm taking, and the first question that she asked me was, is this really what you're passionate about? And I said, well, I, you know, I think so. I'm, I definitely am interested in this. She said, well, what else are you interested in? And I said, well, I'm really interested in the environment. I'm interested in politics and, and really in international relations. When I went into, the one thing that I knew I wanted to do when I went into university was I knew I wanted to spend a year in France. I had started learning French when I was about eight years old, after school classes that were basically extended childcare, essentially, and I volunteered and said, I want to learn French. And I just, I carried on doing that when I had the chance to actually start taking foreign language classes in middle school when I was about 11 years old, I chose French. And so I carried on with this foreign language throughout high school, and then when I got to, to uni, I said, I really want to become fluent in French and I want to spend a year studying at a French university and immersing myself in French language and French culture. So my advisor was like, well, you know, it sounds like you're interested in a lot more than just medicine and maybe you should go broader than... It's interesting that she probed you like that. Do you mm. think there was a reason behind her doing it? I, I, I don't know. I think she wanted to make sure that I didn't squander this opportunity yeah. at a liberal arts university to specialized before I really understood what I was getting myself into. Sounds like she was very good at her job. Yeah, she was. She, she was. Identify that in somebody. It's yeah. quite a skill, isn't it? Yeah, and she and also she was a political science professor. Right. So I, I actually had her for not a political science class. It was my, my first experience with her. We, I was part of a program called the Honors Program at Boston College. And the Honors Program was essentially a multidisciplinary program that allowed students to 
pick off a host of required classes, but in a really small group setting. So 15 students maximum per class studying religion, English literature, or literature more generally, philosophy, history, art, and a few other things. Mm. And as a professor who taught in this program, she was very much of a much more broad academic and philosophical tradition than just a pure political science background. So she asked me these questions and I just said, well, you know, I'm, I'm interested in a lot of things. And she then had me basically rearrange my entire schedule so that I had a science class, I had her class, I had a French class, and oh, I think I took a history class as well in my first year. And I just fell in love with these, well, different subjects and, and decided in the end to study international relations. I focused on political science and then I also had the chance to bolt on a French minor to my degree. And when I graduated, after spending a year in France and studying, and you know, fell absolutely head over heels in love with Paris, I just decided I'm not ready to go into a career yet. I'm 22 years old, how could I possibly know what I want to do with the rest of my life? But one thing that I knew I wanted to do was really make sure that I was fluent in French and also had a professional experience that enabled me to then springboard into something else. If it was going into law school, great. If it was taking the experience and the work ethic that I would have to demonstrate working as a paralegal in, in a French law firm, then that certainly could be valuable as well. It's really interesting. It's very varied as well, which is great, I think. It would be phenomenal if everybody in the world, it sounds very sweeping, had that same kind of breakdown to someone to sit them down first and foremost and say what is it that you think you want to do because like you were saying at such a young age it's hard to actually know that isn't it it's hard to make those choices so I often feel like in this country in particular we go to university too young because mm. to make that decision to focus on a subject matter at your late teens early 20s is then you probably end up doing something completely different to what you actually study because there's so oh, yeah. much more of an evolution to take place, isn't there? Absolutely. And that's true for you. Oh, for sure. And I just remember too, you know, I, I remember I toured Harvard University on September 10th, 2001. So the day before the world changed. Mm. And, oh, yeah, of course. And it was beautiful, bright blue sky, sunny day in the Boston area. Mm. And on the tour, the tour guide talked about how the founder of Harvard University believed that it was important for every student to get a broad-based education in everything and a specialist education in something. So I've always had that attitude of you know really wanting to be an expert in a particular area, and that's where you know my career has ended up so far is that. I feel like I am an expert in a, in a couple of areas around clean tech, but when it comes to being able to sit down at a dinner party and have a conversation about advances in science and also what's happening on the political scene, then that is as important as being able to go into the deep dive details of your particular field of expertise. So how do you go from coming back from Paris? <laughs> Obviously, having picked up the language, I would imagine. Yep. And um, then you go on to co-found your own tech startup. Yes. Is, was that, did that happen fairly quickly? No. Or was there a lot of steps and trials and tribulations in between? Yeah. So I, my 
visa in France lasted for a year and a half, and at the end of that year and a half, I still wasn't ready to come back to the U.S. and I needed to, you know, have a few more adventures. So I put my my network to to work and asked folks, you know, around the world where there were opportunities for a young person to come and volunteer. At the time that I was working in Paris, the exchange rate was at somewhere between 1.4 and 1.6 dollars to the euro. And uh, that meant that when I took my euros and translated them into dollars, they could go a lot further. Mm -hmm. And beyond that, How I had... How now? Oh, <laughs> God, honestly. So, and then on top of that, I'd been banking pretty much everything that I'd earned because I was working my tail off and didn't really have time to go out and spend the money that I was earning. So I took that money and I decided I'm going to take a year and go and volunteer in Southeast Asia. And I ended up working with an organization that was funded by the U.S. government and their mission was really to engage young people in urban areas and connect them to their peers in rural areas. Mm -hmm. but the reason why they were doing that was because in rural areas there were all kinds of environmental crimes that were taking place and crimes around land rights and revocation of land rights for people who in many instances were illiterate and had absolutely no access to legal recourse around the fact that they were getting kicked off their land illegally. So this was in the 2008 time frame. And that time in Cambodia, they had come out of a long period of civil unrest and war. The country was still incredibly poor, but in you know hyper-growth mode, double-digit growth at the time. Huge amounts of investment coming in, mainly from China and also from Korea and a few other Asian countries. And you know the country was for the first time really starting to see this huge uptick in activity and development of land in urban and also in rural environments. So essentially what was happening was in rural areas there were fire sales of land in the countryside that also happened to be in areas where people lived. And the fi these fire sales were, were going to develop... What do you mean by that, fire sales? Well, so some of these sales were taking place so-called above board. Right. Other times they were taking place... A bit dodgily. <laughs> yeah, more, more than a bit. <laughs> And essentially what was happening was that the government was making a decision to sell the land of the countryside, which at the time was the only remaining place in Southeast Asia where you had primary evergreen forest. You know, there were huge tracts of land where tigers and forest elephants and trees that had been in existence for hundreds of years were still living. This is mainly because Cambodia had been an unsafe place for development. And they were, they were just selling it off without any real responsibility attached to it? Yeah, it was an opportunity for the people in power to take a lot of money and put it in the bank, essentially. Right. So without really thinking about the fact that if they were to not sell the land to foreign entities or even to domestic cronies of the prime minister and, and his mates, then if they were to hang on to that land and develop it them themselves, then they would be able to develop potentially a recurring revenue stream that might actually stimulate growth and longer term, more sustainable development in the country. But why do that when you can, you know, make a quick buck? Be corrupt, essentially. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So as a part of an effort to monitor and uncover those activities, one of the things that the U.S. government decided to do was to connect young people in between urban environments, you know, places where young people were going to university, they were engaging with the internet, 
which at the time Facebook was just opening up mm. in Cambodia and Southeast Asia, social networking was starting to become a thing. Do they have restricted access to it though? At the time, no. Right. Now, yes. But it's still, I mean, it's not like China. You know, in China, oh. you can't, you so-called can't access Facebook except through a VPN, which could be monitored and, you know, it's a bit more, more challenging. Yeah, but at the yeah. time, you could literally say whatever you wanted on Facebook in Cambodia and they had no way of patrolling and policing it. So Skype wasn't monitored either and, and I'm sure that it probably is now. But at the time, it was a much easier, you know, freer internet environment in the country. So connecting these young people in urban environments with their peers and trying to stimulate those kinds of social connections to then help to identify when and where those kinds of illegal land seizures were taking place, how they were taking place, document them, and then bring them to light in front of major donors for the Cambodian government, company, or organizations like the World Bank, and then national governments that provided aid to the country. So that was the work that I was doing. I was traveling back and forth between the capital city of Phnom Penh and rural environments on the countryside, and it was really, it was an amazing opportunity for me to get to see how people lived in yeah. a place like Cambodia. I, you know, like I said, I knew that I was privileged growing up. I had a stable, happy family life, living outside of one of the most dynamic cities in North America, arguably the world, and then get to spend a year living in Cambodia where there's so much that you realize that you take for granted, you know. Gave you some perspective. Absolutely. And of all the things that I experienced and dealt with while I was living in Cambodia, the one thing that really got under my skin was the fact that nowhere in the country was there reliable power. Unless you lived like in the Prime Minister's palace, mm -hmm. you know, or had your own generator that provided 24-7, 365 electricity. The apartments that I lived in in Phnom Penh had daily power outages. And if you've ever had the experience of sitting in 40 degree heat without even so much as a fan kind of blowing air on you, then you understand that it's really uncomfortable. But then when you think about the other practicalities of that, like all the food in your refrigerator going bad, the fact that we would have to shut down work for several hours a day in the middle of the day sometimes because we couldn't get access to the internet. Well, these so, things you just take for granted. Absolutely. And they become an actual prohibitive way of you know, stopping you from working or stopping you from sleeping or drinking or eating or functioning. Yeah. And then expand that out to what it means you know, at a, at a national level. So in terms of healthcare, the hospitals that operated in the, in the countryside oftentimes had no power for several hours a day. We saw what that looked like in last year or two years ago when Hurricane Maria hit Puerto Rico. And you had thousands of people die as a result of not being able to be kept cool or have their kidney dialysis machines operating or all the things that are so important Life to- Life support, ventilation, absolutely. everything. So, so, you know, so healthcare, industry, being able to run factories on grid-powered electricity is not something that was necessarily possible at the time in Cambodia. And it's not just Cambodia that experiences these challenges, it's lots of countries around the world. And then even to bring it home to my country, you know, we're a highly developed country with an electricity grid that's been in existence for close to 100 years now and across most of the country. But we have power outages all the time, and you really realize 
just how important electricity is to your life when you don't have it. Yeah, of course. So, so for me, that was the one thing that I walked away from my experience in Cambodia with, is that electricity is so fundamental to everything that we do, and for people that don't have access to it, they're the ones that realize how fundamental it is. But it's not just that access is the most important thing. It's certainly really important. Mm -hmm. But increasingly, it's how you get access to that energy that's incredibly important. When I was living in Cambodia, the Chinese government was building a huge coal-fired power station on the south coast of the country. So picture these beautiful white sand beaches, palm trees, lovely crystal clear water, bucolic fishing villages being displaced by a giant, ugly, smoke-belching coal-fired power station with coal that's being imported from other countries. In what world does it make sense to generate electricity in that way when actually we can generate electricity close to where it's required with distributed renewables? We could work with a much more distributed energy system that could actually potentially provide carbon benefits and also much greater reliability because of the well, lack of need to rely on long transmission lines in order to get that power from the coast into the center of the country. It just seems like there are so many better ways that they could be doing it. So, so that you. experience really got me thinking about how this whole system needs to change. And I'd say that, that was perhaps the next like big transformative thing to get me on the path of moving into the clean tech space. Would you say it's one of the periods in your life that you're most proud of? You look back on it and think, I learned so much, I experienced so much. I, I it really set you off on the trajectory you're on now. I'm not sure I would say I'm most proud of it, but it certainly was one of the most formative yeah. experiences. Um, and I think that without it, I don't think that I would be doing what I do now. You had the inspiration. Yep and you came back to America and had the means and you sat down and figured it all out a little bit because obviously the logistics behind starting up anything, let alone a sustainable energy business, is a challenge. Yeah. Well, so I came back to America at the, probably the worst time to come back and actually start to like figure out what the rest of my life looks like. Mm. came back to America in December of 2008, right as the global economy was cratering. And I ended up spending about a year or so either unemployed or underemployed because there was nothing available for no opportunities. No opportunities. Yeah. People were being laid off left, right, and center. People, Just 2008, the kind of crash. Yes, yeah. 2008, 2009. You know, people who had been laid off were taking jobs that were substantially worse paid than they had been previously paid. So the competition in the job market was incredible. And I ended up, well, not volunteering, working for an organization that was promoting the development of offshore wind in the state of Massachusetts. Mm. Uh, so by that time, my mom and dad had moved to Cape Cod, which is a sandy vacation wonderland south of Boston. It sounds terrible. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a hardship. It's a hardship location to come up to. And um, it's where I spent a lot of my childhood, actually. My parents ended up buying a, a cottage on Cape Cod when I was about 11 years old. So we spent all of my summers on the Cape, and 
that's where I learned to sail, did a lot of surfing, body surfing, and spending time by the water. And when I came back from Southeast Asia, it was just this, you know, this opportunity to get involved in a landmark clean energy project for my local area. Mm. And that was the thing that kind of got me actually enough credibility to start working in the clean tech space. Well, not so much clean tech, but in the energy tech space. I, I ended up moving to Washington, D.C. and worked for four years for an organization that was the U.S. Member Committee to the World Energy Council. And what we also did was a lot of consulting work with the U.S. government, basically creating these partnerships between utilities in developing countries and utilities in the United States or other developed countries mm -hmm. to share best practices about how energy efficiency programs could work or the integration of renewables into a transmission network could work and mm -hmm. has worked in the United States and other countries. So again, incredibly formative experience for me and really helps me to continue to develop that knowledge. But what it also did was it helped me to understand that I was working in a nonprofit environment. I had really only worked for nonprofits to that point, with the exception of the law firm in France. And if I was going to have any sort of meaningful impact, then I needed to go on and work in the private sector. So I decided to do uh, an MBA. And to do that, I decided to do it in one year at Imperial College London. And that is really what got me started on the innovation clean tech journey. So only about five years ago. So it's quite a long and meandering path to get to where I am and where I've come from in the last few years. But I think very intentional and very much, um, I do believe that everything happens for a reason and that that journey was necessary to get me where I am now. How did you come to be involved with the Women of the Future program? So I was, this was a total surprise to me, I was nominated by someone from Imperial College oh, in the category of the MBA star. And they nominated me because I was a good student and also a leader in my class. I was the social chair. I was the co-captain of the football team, also the only woman on the football team. You didn't hear anything half-hearted, <laughs> do you? I'm doing this. I'm doing it with everything I've got. <laughs> and you're going to support yeah, me. Yeah, you're going to help me with it. Thank you. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, so that was somebody from the university just said, Lauren needs to be nominated for this. And the thing that my application focused on was the fact that I had co-founded this small micro-hydropower turbine technology company called Lunagen. And really the idea was to try to promote the fact that here I was this young woman who was really still trying to make waves and, and change the way in which people generate and consume electricity. Change for good. Yes. I have some quick fire questions. Yes. They're never quick fire, but let's give it a go. Okay. Um, what would you describe as your greatest success? Um, my greatest success, I think, is for me, it's having had a global career. Getting the chance to live and work in so many different places is such a privilege and a joy. I feel like I've had this unbelievable opportunity to learn from people whose backgrounds are so vastly different from mine. Mm. And to bring that level of empathy and experience with me into conversations in particular in a place like London is just so powerful because you realize that everyone has their own story and everybody has their own prejudices and biases they come to the table with. And for me, you know, it's been a great opportunity to, to be able to take that experience of 
working with people from vastly different backgrounds and then be able to apply that to this incredibly dynamic, diverse working environment that we have here. So I think my greatest success, and it, you know, is also a battle of the wills. If you've ever emigrated to a foreign country, you realize just how easy it is when you're not an immigrant. <laughs> so I've had to apply for resident visas in France, in Cambodia, in the United Kingdom, and then mm. my husband, who's English, was in the United States with me, and he had to apply also for residency permits mm. in the U.S. And you know, you really realize just how energy zapping it is to be constantly thinking about how it is that you're going to remain with your loved one, yeah. and managing to make that work. I think it's been it's been a huge <coughs> challenge for us as a couple, but one that's been absolutely mm. worth it. Will you stay in the UK now? Do you think? Well, I'm definitely going to be here for another couple of years, and then we'll see. And your greatest failure? I'm not going to call it a failure yet. We've had to put my micro hydro turbine company on ice for a little while, and I would love to bring it back to life. I would love, 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 love to be in charge of this company or a similar clean tech company in the mm. future. Um, and I don't think that it was a failure to have to put the company on ice, but what I do think is that it was an important step on the journey to understanding what it takes to be a successful entrepreneur. And the lessons that I learned from that experience were manifest and incredibly important and will be incredibly important mm. to my future success, either as an entrepreneur or as a business person. Let's not call that a failure. That's a learning experience, right? That's going to come back. Uh, okay, so, so, so if you're going to really push me, then let's see, probably my other greatest failure. Do you see failure as failure? Because it's quite a harsh word in itself, isn't it? I, I don't really, actually. Mm. And the mantra that I've had for many years now is you fail fast to succeed sooner. And so if I was to look at everything that didn't work in my life as a failure, oh, life would be so depressing. I mean, it would be for everybody, wouldn't it? You have to compartmentalize it and actually say, that didn't work, that did. It actually now feels as more of a gray than a black and white. Yes, yeah, absolutely. And you know, where for me, like I said at the beginning of our conversation, learning is just the most important thing. Like, what is failure but an opportunity to learn? If I didn't learn from something and continuously repeated the same mistake, I would say that's a major failure. Ooh, I agree. So the mantra of the woman of the future is kindness and collaboration. Yes. What does that mean to you in both your personal and professional life? I think it's the same, actually, in both my personal and professional life, because I don't think that people should be treated any differently if they're your friend or your colleague or somebody that you're trying to do business with. For me, kindness and collaboration means being thoughtful, being honest and open about your intentions and, and straightforward as well. Because I really struggle with people who change the intent of an activity halfway through. So if you agree that you're going to do something with me, then let's agree to do that together. And if that thing doesn't make sense after a little while, then let's agree to change. Yeah, but do it together. Exactly. And so I think that kindness and collaboration kind of go hand in hand. Let's be straightforward with mm -hmm. one another. 
let's be thoughtful about how we go about developing that relationship and let's make sure that we aren't putting ourselves or the other party over the needs of the other because ultimately at the end of the day we all have to make sure that we're bought into something and that the things that we do benefits you know ourselves but also the, the folks that we're hopefully working with or impacting upon. Because your role now is head of partnerships yes so that says collaboration <laughs> even in a title so do you find that that comes with not a burden I suppose but a that's what people expect of you, to be collaborative, to join people up. Is that part and parcel of what you do now? Yeah, it absolutely is. And, you know, very much a part of it too is having huge amounts of empathy for the needs of the party that you're trying to impact upon. So for me, what, what that means in the partnerships context is that I work with stakeholders internally and prospective external partners to come together and develop products and services that make sense for customers. And those customers could be businesses, they could be consumers, you know, households, normal people, normal everyday people. And the thing that we always need to keep in mind is that whatever it is that we're doing is for that customer. And that the needs of the individual parties that are coming together to make this work aren't oftentimes the most important thing that needs to be considered. Mm -hmm. So having that empathy for the customer pain point, the customer problem, that is the most important thing. And so as a part of my job, bringing that level of empathy, I think it's really hard to separate that from kindness mm -hmm. because at the end of the day, if you're not empathetic with what the needs of the customer are, then you're not going to be providing the needs uh, of you know the other partners that or parties that you're bringing to the table or giving anybody what they want exactly is there anything that scares you lots of things scare me <laughs> oh my god the last week has been terrifying <laughs> <laughs> look at the news oh, yeah. and holy yes. cow i mean I, I think that the one thing that really genuinely does scare me is how so as as an american and as somebody living in the united kingdom we have become obsessed by individuals who are selfishly and negligently conducting themselves in the businesses of our countries at the expense of things that are really actually quite important. And for me, climate change is the A number one most important thing. And then you can go down the list in terms of other things that are really important, healthcare, in the United States, gun control, hugely important. And one of the things that really scares me, and this is true about the United States and also about the UK, is that I worry that we aren't gonna be able to do big things anymore. The fact that we're so polarized and we can't listen to one another, apparently, it worries me that the biggest challenges that are currently facing society are going to become eclipsed by our inability to work together. The egos of people. Yeah. Absolutely. So so that's something that deeply scares me. I would also be lying if I said I wasn't worried about civil unrest at this time. And it's something that sounds really apocalyptic to a lot of people, but again, my country endures untold levels of violence. And it's not something that appears in the news every day because it's not every day that somebody walks into a Walmart and shoots up, shoots up the place and kills 20 some odd people. Oh, but every single day, 
in the United States this year, there's been at least one mass shooting, which is defined by three or more people being shot in a single shooting event. And that level of violence takes an enormous toll on the society. And I think that we've just become inured to it because of the fact that seemingly, somehow, we can't do anything about it. That's something that really, really scares me. In the work that I do, we recently made some content for BBC Stories about a white supremacist who'd run over a black kid. And the title was the, something along the lines of the killing that shook America, and we had to change it because it didn't. Because like you said, the scale of it, the fact that this stuff happens every day, it just, it's not compassion fatigue, but it's almost unreasonably accepted. It's just it's bonkers to say that something like a child, not it wasn't a child, it was in his 20s, I think, being mm. run over and killed in the name of race, arguably, mm. that's not important. Whereas, I don't know, it just kind of blows your mind a little bit when you think of things like that. I completely agree. And, you know, this is not something, like, if you think about, like, the levels of violence that we endure in the United States, it's not just guns. It's, you know, you go back in time and go back to the days of slavery. August 2019, is the 400th anniversary of the arrival of slaves in the United States. Mm. And that's 400 years of institutionalized racism in my country that has really, I think, not been fully interrogated and understood just the, the level of impact that that has on our willingness to accept violence. Yeah. And that violence ranges on everything at the, you know, the far end from instance like what you've just talked about to just the levels of acceptance that it's okay and that people who grew up poor deserve to be mm. poor because they somehow haven't tried to not be poor anymore. Yeah. I just think that we, again, you think about really big structural challenges and this, this does apply to the UK as well. I mean classism in this country is, I believe, a huge institutional barrier to social mobility. Absolutely. And, and, and maybe the, the levels of violence are different here, but it's a challenge that's cut from the exact same cloth as what we have in the United States. Mm. And as um, an environmentalist, when Trump came into power, I heard that he deleted the climate change section of the White House website. But it's things like, you know, he arguably ignores that climate change even exists. How do you deal with that in the work that you do? So, you know, step one is just remain aware. Mm -hmm. um, I read in the New York Times this morning a laundry list of things that the Trump administration is doing to roll back on environmental regulations. Right. And what's really interesting to me is how many companies actually have stood up and said, this is totally unacceptable. Right now, the work that I do is actually all around electric vehicles, so decarbonizing the transportation sector, which is a huge area of opportunity for us in terms of meaningfully tackling mm. our emissions in the UK, in Europe, and globally. And there are some countries that are really meaningfully going after that goal. When Donald Trump rolled back the fleet emission standards that were set by the Obama administration, from what I can tell, pretty much only because it was a regulation that was put in place by his predecessor, who he appears to absolutely loathe. Mm. There were several car manufacturers that came back and said, this isn't good for us. 
and actually created an alliance with the state of California mm. to bring back up the standards that were required under the Obama administration. Slightly less stringent, but still much stronger than what the Trump administration was proposing. That's one thing that actually gives me quite a lot of hope, yeah. is that you see some companies that are stepping up and saying, actually, we want to be leaders in this space, and in order to be leaders, we're going to drag the government along with us to acknowledge this. And, yeah. and make sure that they are putting us in a position to, to become leaders. Mm -hmm. So that's something that, that does give me hope. But yeah, watching, it seems like on a weekly basis, there's something new be it the rollback of methane emissions regulations that was announced yesterday to last week loosening of regulations on the Endangered Species Act and basically making it easier for oil and gas companies to drill on public lands where critically threatened species are living. So yes, it's something that really, really gets <laughs> under my skin. Yeah. What is left on your to-do list? Oh, I love to travel. I desperately want to continue to travel the world to see and experience wildlife environments that I haven't experienced yet. So high on my to-do list is going to see the gorillas in Rwanda. Oh, wow. I would love, love to go back to the Great Barrier Reef to, to dive. I'm not sure if it was the Australian government or the UN or which body it was, mm. but the health of the Great, the Great Barrier Reef has been downgraded from poor to very poor as a result of threats from climate change. Mm -hmm. So going back and seeing it, you know, before it really before goes away is a high priority for me. Going to see the Amazon is a high priority for me. So those are a few things on my on my bucket list. I'm at the stage in my life where I am starting to think about longer term having a family and I really want to get to experience those kinds of environments with my children and with my husband and to create young people who are passionate about this stuff, who get it, who've seen it firsthand and who appreciate just how lucky they are to have had that experience and want to make sure that that experience is something that other children and other young people can experience in their lives. So for me, very much high on my priority list is making sure that I, I continue to influence what the next generation of environmental stewards looks like. That's a great answer. It's been brilliant talking to you. Thank you so much for your time. My absolute pleasure. Thanks, Kim. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Women of the Future podcast. If you enjoyed it, please hit the subscribe button. And while you're there, why not give us a rating and review? You know you want to. For more about the Women of the Future Awards, network and initiative, please visit www.womenofthefuture.co.uk. See you soon.